Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and my returning guest today is Radhika Dutt. Now, she is the author of Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter, and I have that book on my desk. She says when we build products without thinking about the change we want to create in the world, we inflict collateral damage to society, and her book is very clear on that. I really strongly recommend that you get it. She was here two months ago and had so much to share that I asked her to come back and continue the conversation. So today she again joins the podcast to talk about strategy, the importance of validating our assumptions. She calls it the product disease narcissist complex, the importance of starting with a pain point rather than a technology, measuring success, and the five types of digital pollution. Radhika, welcome back to your partner in success radio. Okay, can you hear me? Are you? Uh-oh, I lost her. She just dropped. Well, we'll hope that she gets back in. So anyway, if you look, go look for her on Amazon, R-A-D-H-I-K-A. Her last name is Dutt. The book is fascinating, and she has a lot of case studies that prove what she's talking about, that people are looking for products that actually, they're not what the engineers think they should be. They're what you need, what you're looking for. So we are having trouble getting her in, but let's give it just another minute and see if I can get her. I see her on the dashboard. And let's see. Radhika, can you hear me? Radhika. Oh, let's see what happens here. Can you hear me now? Okay, this is not good. Um... I'm not entirely sure what to do here. It's Monday. Okay, let's try this. Radhika, can you hear me now? I can. Can you hear me? I can, and I was getting ready to whine and cry and pitch a fit. So I'm <laughs> not. It's Monday. It's technology boo-boos. Welcome back to your partner in Success Radio. I'm glad to hear your voice. Likewise, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have to reschedule this. You know, I was going through all kinds of, you know, weird little suppositions in my head. And there you were. I was like, oh, there she is. Okay. Okay, so listen. <laughs> I'm over it now. I was now. I'm okay. from the website, and I couldn't hear you. So, but I I'm glad this Yeah, it did. So anyway, um, tell people a bit, you know, I've given you the introduction so people who have been listening to me whine and cry know who you are. But tell people a bit about who you are. So uh, I've been an entrepreneur and uh, product leader uh, for many years. So my background is that I've started a few companies and sold them. Um, And uh, most recently, I wrote the book, Radical Product Thinking, uh, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. So that's the title of the book. And it really summarizes for me 
so much of what I've learned through hard lessons and through trial and error, um, it summarizes so many of those lessons into a very succinct book that describes, you know, how can we build world-changing products in a repeatable way? Um, so instead of just, oh, let's just try things and see what works, how can we build these uh, really, how, how can we really create change very systematically through our products? And I was explaining that I have the book on, on my desk, and I've read it. And it's a very clear-thinking book. It's easy to read. It's easy to understand. And listen, as a web developer, I understand that you can't throw spaghetti at the ceiling. You have to have – you have to know what it is that your your audience, your clients, your consumers – you have to really have a, at least a pretty fair idea of what their pain points are, what they're looking for, not what you just think is cool and neat and shiny. And a lot of people go, oh, oh, I've got this. It's perfect. This is beautiful. And they're shocked when nobody has any interest in it at all. But they haven't found out what is really needed. Exactly. And I think some of this comes from our perception, right, where we've heard uh, people say, well, or even Steve Jobs' quote is used to describe this. Um, Steve Jobs said, well, you can't ask customers what they want. Uh, you uh, you have to kind of give it to them, right? And and that quote is used often uh, to say, well, you know, there's no reason to really ask customers what they want, or it's not about uh, it's not about you know figuring out what they need. Like you just have to know it. You have to be that visionary. I think the reality is that is such a flawed idea because even though what Steve Jobs really meant was you cannot ask them directly, you know, do you want this feature or that. Uh, what you have to do is really understand the user's pain in a great level of depth, like having that clear understanding and that empathy for the user so that you can translate that into a solution for that problem. Uh, it doesn't happen just by asking someone, oh, is this the solution that you want? Um, and, and that's not quite what he meant. No. And, you know, I've had the same reaction to that quote. I'm like, What? And I, I, I didn't follow through as well as you did. You explained it really well. But, you know, I see things all the time. Software engineers, they're known for just creating something because somebody in the sales department said, oh, we need this. Okay, but why do you need it? What's it really going to do? What's it going to – software engineers are – they're engineers. <laughs> I'm not saying anything ugly about engineers, but they don't know much about how to really reach out to people or watch people and find out what their true pain points are. What do they actually need? Does it need to be simplified? Does it need a little bit more here, a little bit less there? Take the mustard off. Whatever it is, they, they don't seem to have the ability to go hone what is really what people are looking for. Unless things are changing, and I'm not noticing any real changes. It's, it's true, right? And I think part of it, I think there are two reasons for it. One is um, that, first of all, execution and just working on something, that's often our comfort zone. And it feels like it's progress because you're working on something, and so, you know, when you're doing it, it's just satisfying, right? Because you feel like yes. intellectually you're, you're getting something done. I do the same thing as a web developer. Oh, this is perfect. And then I look at it again with the client, and they're like, it's good. It's great. Not quite what I had in mind. That doesn't happen very often, to be honest, because I have a lot of consultations. But in my early days, I would just build what I thought needed to be built. 
Yes. And that, right. that was exactly. the wrong attitude. I'll tell you right now, it was the wrong attitude. Right, exactly. Uh, and so I think that is one reason. The second reason is, you know, it's just really hard to know how you even ask customers. Like, how do you do your user research so you can figure out what customers need? It, um, very often, we think we can ask someone a question, like, if I built this, would you use it? Uh, and it turns out that, you know, people will go to great lengths to tell you what you want to hear. It's because people are trying to be nice. It's just right. our instincts, right? <laughs> if, I, if I ask someone, you know, will you read my book? Of course you're not going to say, no, I won't. <laughs> Um, but but the question is right. You have to really understand what is that pain. Um, do they need it enough? Um, and then it's not based on asking them, "Will you read my book?" It's more of you know even in figuring out what I had to write. It was about understanding what is the pain that someone had. You know, it's the fact that it's really hard to know how do you build a successful product so that it can be successful every time. Um, and knowing that pain and then deciding, okay, that's what I want my book to be about. And so the question isn't, um, you know, will you read my book if I write it about this? If you want to do true user research, you would ask, well, you know, what is hard about building a product? And that's the level of, like, you really want to get to what is the problem someone has? That pain point. We always talk exactly. about pain points. You know, if you, you can get to a website or you can get to a product and all of a sudden it's answering questions that you had and maybe one or two that you didn't even have, there you go. Now you have a new consumer. But if you can't answer those questions or address them, you've got a really pretty website that's probably a nice boat anchor. <laughs> exactly. I'm not kidding. So, so let, let's talk about strategy a bit because I know we we touched on that a bit ago when you were here in October, but it's so important, and I know you've got some terrific case studies. So I am going to let you just go wherever you want to with strategy because I think, unless I'm mistaken, isn't that where you should start when you're building a product? Well, actually, you have to start with a vision. Uh, oh, okay. Once you have a really clear vision, then strategy is how you translate that vision into a set of actionable steps. Uh, so just to recap, kind of, maybe we should just talk, like, for one moment about what is a good vision. And I think people can go and refer to our previous, po previous podcast that you just talked about, uh, where we talk about what is a good vision. Uh, and in the radical product thinking way, you know, there's a fill-in-the-blank statement that you can use to craft a really good vision. And it's not one of those fluffy visions like, you know, uh, to revolutionize or to disrupt, uh, which was our fun pet peeve together. <laughs> um, you can hear more about that in the previous podcast. But it's not one of those fluffy vision statements uh, like, you know, being number one or number two in the market. A good vision is very detailed. Um, and it explains the who, what, why, when, and how questions for your particular product. But and where can people vision, find that? Tell us where they can go to find that. Is it in the book, or do you have something on your website? Ah, uh, Yes, thank you for reminding me. Yes, it's in the book. You can find How to Write a Good Vision. That's uh, chapter number three. 
Uh, but you can also get the free toolkit from RadicalProduct.com that helps you write such a vision in a fill-in-the-blank statement um, so that you can have a really clear vision that will align your whole team uh, so everyone understands the who, what, why, when, and how for your product. Perfect. Okay. Keep going. I had to ask. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but once you have a clear vision, right, um, how do you actually use that vision? How do you, what does that vision mean in terms of, uh, you know, what you're actually going to do? That's where your strategy comes in. And so what is the strategy? Like this is something that I realized, you know, for me it was very fluffy. Everyone knows they need a strategy, but it's one of the things like everyone knows you need inner peace. <laughs> it's just, well, what does that mean? How do you get there, right? Um, it can't be that fluffy. And so um, in the radical part of thinking way, strategy is defined in a really concrete way. It means answering four questions, and the easy-to-remember mnemonic is radical, or RDCL. The R stands for real pain points. It means asking the question, you know, what's the pain that makes someone uh, come to your product? Why are they coming to your product? The D is design, meaning what is the solution or the design that's going to address that pain? The C is for capabilities, meaning what's the engine that powers the design? And then finally, uh, L is for logistics, uh, which is you know, how will you bring the solution to the customer? So this logistics piece, by the way, is the, the part of uh, strategy that's very often forgotten. Um, it means asking, you know, how will you actually sell your product? What's your pricing strategy? Um, how will you support your product or train people on it? Very often this last part, you know, it's left off for as an afterthought, like, oh, let's just build our product and then we'll think about how to sell it and support it, et cetera, uh, which, which very often, you know, means your product isn't successful. But this RDCL is the crux of what is a good strategy. I can also share a story of how this RDCL comes together. And the story I want to share, right, is uh, the story of a startup. Uh, the startup was called Mac, and uh, it was an entrepreneur who uh, came to me, and you know he was telling me how his numbers were all looking good. Numbers meaning you know he had a, a great number of daily active users. His net promoter scores were fantastic. Uh, people were organically going to his app, and you know by all counts that sounds like success, right? Um, except Paul was really unhappy with how his uh, company was going, and he felt like this, this wasn't what he would have signed up for. So I'll tell you more about a startup. Like Paul was inspired by the suspended coffee movement in Italy, which uh, basically is where you buy, you pay for two coffees. One is for yourself, and the other is paid forward for someone who could use a random act of kindness. So that's the suspended coffee movement. I hadn't and, heard it like that, but I'm aware of the that people do this a lot. Yeah, yeah. So he wanted to build an app that gave people this uh, ability to buy some of the coffee and spread this random act of coffee, as he called it. Um, and so his numbers were looking good, but the one number that mattered that was not good was the fact that nobody actually was spending their own money to buy someone a coffee. Everyone was coming to this app to get free coffee. 
Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> that's a so, that's a big overlook. That's you know, once you miss that, that's kind of a big chunk of your your business going out there. Right. That's what oh. I was unhappy because yeah. all those numbers, like those were the popular metrics that we all measure, right? The number of people on your site, net promoter scores, blah blah. But that wasn't the metric that really mattered for his startup, and so. His what he measured had to be grounded on his strategy, and he had a vision. But what was the strategy? Like, how was he going to create this um, ability to get people to, you know, spread kindness? And so, uh, when I came in, so this is the strategy that we helped craft. So first, we looked at real pain points. We said, well, so why would someone like? What's the pain? Like, why? Uh, why aren't they doing what they're supposed to be doing in terms of spreading kindness? Like, what, what do they need in this app? Um, and the answer was that, you know, people, they just aren't used to buying someone a coffee, right? It's just an action that we're not used to doing. And so it's hard to spend your money on buying someone a coffee when you haven't done that before through an app. So that was the pain point. So in terms of design, our solution was we needed to get people used to buying someone a coffee, but learning to do that without having to spend their own money. So that was the design that we needed. So what does this mean in terms of capabilities? To be able to power that design, Paul then went and built partnerships with brands so that brands who wanted to stand behind this message of spreading kindness, they would partner with us and they allowed this feature, uh, because they were funding these coffees, where uh, we now added a feature where, you know, each person would get two coffees, not one. They would get two coffees where the first coffee is for you to consume. The second coffee you must gift. And so that was our design. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I was going to ask you about this. Like, can't you prevent people from just gobbling up the coffee and drinking it themselves? So you figured that out. But uh, and I'm thinking about an app, and of course apps are getting more and more popular. People use them all the time. But as far as I know, and I'm not a Starbucks person by any stretch of the imagination, I, if I'm going to drink coffee, which is rare, I'll drink it at home. But my my understanding is, in the United States at least, that people will just kind of do it on on the fly. They're going to be in the drive through window or they're going to be somewhere and they'll turn around and say, buy the next person a coffee. And it's kind of an emotional moment that they just do it because they're there. Exactly. But this is different. This is a different mindset entirely. Exactly. And that's why, okay. you know, in terms of the real pain point, to make it uh, easy and something that you and, – and to cultivate that mindset, we had to get over that real pain point, right? It, you're exactly spot on. And so this is why – the, the brands, they allowed us to fund those free coffees, which meant each person could get two coffees and learn to gift these coffees. And in terms of um, L, which is the logistics uh, out of the RDCL, this meant that our business model now was that we would get a percentage of the brand sponsorship fee. So that was our strategy. And so how did that result in uh, things changing? Well, at the beginning, I, I, do you remember I was saying that nobody was buying someone a coffee? Um, right. Well, uh, after we tested this new strategy um, and, and that was grounded in pain points, uh, it turned out that 27% of people who were learning to gift someone a coffee were now spending their own money on buying someone a coffee. 
Okay, now I'm so, lost. Whose money were they spending? Well, so initially it was the brand funding the coffee, right? So oh, I why, see. You said that. Okay. So that's how, right. And now, once they had learned to give someone a coffee using the free coffees, they were now starting to spend their own money on buying someone a coffee. So now finally Paul's vision was starting to work of getting people to, you know, spread kindness uh, by, and, and wanting to use their money to spread kindness, right? Well, it is kind of an emotional thing. So like I say, I've seen it happen time and time again. I'll see it in the grocery store every now and then. I'll read stories about, you know, some a young mother didn't have, the extra $2 she needed, so it was putting things back, and somebody will just swoop in and pay for all the groceries. I see that a lot, but this is a more formalized app, which I, I really like the idea of it. Yeah, and I think, you know, the the idea, even when he started out, was beautiful, right? Um, and he had a great vision, but the example of the strategy really goes to show that even when you have a good idea and a good vision, what you need is the, this, this clarity in thinking through, you know, the real pain points, the design, how will you, the capabilities, or how will you, you know, enable that design, and then finally logistics. You have to think through those four elements so that you can actually make that vision come alive by you know, figuring out, like, what, what, what do you need for that vision to actually translate into a set of steps? And you know what I'm hearing, and probably this is going to sound like I'm a terrible person, but people are greedy. They always want something for free. So you have to kind of factor that into any strategy you've got, I would think. You know, you have to identify where they're going to be able to cheat a bit. Am I right, or am I just way off base? No, I think, I think we have to, more than, uh, I think, the cheating, right? I think we have to look at what is natural for someone to do, and if we're Cheat. asking them to do Cheat. something differently. It. It's like, ooh, I got free coffee. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. What do you mean I have to pay for it now? I don't love you no more. <laughs> yeah, but... I mean, it's an in, but strategy. I think you need to be able to, and I say this to my web, you know, web clients all the time. Before they tell me what they think they want, and they'll tell me, and I'll I'll just be going, okay, and then I tell them to walk through the doors, treat it like they are walking through. They've never designed any of these ideas, and walk through the door and tell me what you want, and it's always completely different. Once they have to imagine being, you know a client or a consumer, they have to walk through that door and say, oh, there's a bottleneck there. Oh, I didn't like that process. Once they get through all of those little pain points, then they can tell me what they want or I can tell them what they need, which is basically what happens. But you have to be able to really walk through it. And that sounds like what you're talking about. Exactly. You have to be able to put yourself in that uh, user's shoes, in the customer's shoes, and really understand Kind of how they're thinking about things. Um, what what's driving them? Like, what is the pain that uh, that they're facing? Uh, and only then can we actually design a solution that works. Like in this case, you know, without an understanding, I feel like if we only dismissed it as people are, you know, prone to want a free coffee, 
Mm-hmm. then we don't really get to the pain. I think we have to really empathize with them and say, well, why wouldn't I give someone a free coffee? Like, why wouldn't I spend my money to give someone a coffee through this app? And that's where you really start to see it from the user's perspective. Like, well, I've never done this before. There's also a social element to this, right? Like, the thing right. of me buying someone a coffee, like, it's, would it be awkward? How does that work, you know? And so by getting people to just try it on a, on a very low uh, risk basis, like without having to spend money, you get to um, overcome this. And so this is what I mean by getting to the pain point, that we have to be able to empathize with that user to that level to really get into their mind. And you just said something really interesting. Is it awkward? Yes, it is, apparently, because, you know, I see video after video or story, you know, like the one I mentioned about the young mom that couldn't buy diapers or whatever that she's trying to buy. And almost without fail, whoever paid for it just takes off. They don't want to be thanked. They don't want to hug. They're just gone because they did something kind, but they don't feel like they need to make a fuss out of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like like something that is so important with this app that people can basically be anonymous but do something that's kind? Exactly. Okay. And it's true to be uh, anonymous or not, but you're right. Like this, this whole social aspect of, you know, how will it be interpreted or something like that? It's just much easier to uh, to to try to give someone a coffee and, you know, um, yeah, exactly, not not feel the awkwardness afterwards. You just want to do something right. nice. Is that available in the United States yet? Because I would do that. I would absolutely give coffee. I don't really drink coffee. I rarely drink it. So could I give away two coffees or? Now I'm curious. I want to know how this works. <laughs> I don't know, actually. I haven't been involved with that startup for a long time. This was many years ago. Uh, but I, I love the was, idea. Yeah. I was just sharing this as an example because, you know, very often, right, uh, we think that uh, just building a good product means making customers happy, right, and, um, or, or delighting customers is the word that's often used. We often think of delighting customers as the end goal, and that is what was happening at this startup, right? Paul was thinking of delighting customers as the end goal, but the reality, right, is delighting customers is only a means to an end. Like, if you think about what was happening, he was even spending his own money to fund the coffees in this app, and customers were delighted by free coffees, but that wasn't achieving the vision. You don't necessarily just have to delight customers. Like, you have to figure out, like, what's the change that you really want to bring? And delighting customers is only to be able to achieve that change that you want to bring to the world. And we, we keep going back to that, and it's very important. So, you know, we talked about the pain point rather than a technology, and I think we talked a good bit about that in the last – I do wish people would go back and listen to that first one. But – where what are you seeing right now? I mean, everything is changing so quickly. Sometimes I feel like I have whiplash just trying to figure out what happened yesterday. It can get kind of crazy. But oh, and I think I just changed my mind about what I wanted to ask you. I am in chapter two, product diseases. When good products go bad, do you want to chat a little bit about that? Because you've got you know disease number one, hero syndrome. Disease number two, strategic swelling. Let's talk a bit about that because it goes hand in hand with what we were just speaking of. Yeah. 
and, and especially since we're talking about strategy, you know, I'll talk about some of these diseases that happen when we don't have a clear strategy. Right. Uh, the first example is, uh, you know, you mentioned strategic swelling. Well, when we are not very clear on exactly what pain points are we going to solve, uh, when we don't have this clarity in terms of a prioritized list of pain points, uh, then we catch strategic selling because our product is just based on, oh, let's do this, and we'll do this, and we'll do that. We have just lots of ideas that all go into the product. And so our product starts to grow and grow and grow, and it gets so bloated that, you know, it gets to a point where it'll even make coffee for you if you just ask nicely. <laughs> Um, that strategic swelling, when we don't have that sort of clarity in terms of strategy, saying what exactly are we trying to solve for, like what are all the pain points, um, that's one example. Another example of a product disease is um, pivotitis, because what happens with pivotitis is, you know, we keep trying different strategies, like one after the other. But when we don't have very much clarity, when we don't have that clarity in terms of, uh, you know, what problem are we trying to solve? Like we'll keep trying different things, but maybe we haven't really figured out what is the pain point. And so we keep having to try different things to see, you know, what sticks. Um, and that's an example of pivotitis. And this goes on all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself. I think, oh, yeah, that's an easy fix. It's not. It's really not. <laughs> Don't ever get that thought in your head. It's never going to be an easy fit. Well, sometimes it could very well be, but that strategy is so, so important. And, you know, I think a lot of people, we're in a hurry. We've got, you know, shiny object syndrome. We're being prompted. Copywriters have, I love copywriters. I love to read them. I know several who are just phenomenal copywriters. And I blame them for me going broke every once in a while because they're that good. <laughs> And, you know, we will all buy something or join, you know, some kind of group or hire a coach because the copywriting is so persuasive. But we really didn't dig down and our strategy should be let's really examine this before we plunk our money down on the table, I think. Mm. But that's from years of, you know, being, ooh, ooh, shiny object. Let me go do that. <laughs> exactly. And that shiny object syndrome is just exactly pivotitis. Um, exactly. Another word for it, exactly. Right. When I read that, I went, oh, shiny object syndrome. I know what she's talking about. Been there, done it. I'll probably do it again. I hope not. Well, yeah, I will. <laughs> just, I can't promise that I won't. But, you know, the thing is, if you go, and I'll just tell the audience right now, if you do sign up for something that's very important, and it's very expensive, and you don't do anything with it, it's your own fault. Shame on you. You should strategize your time and your needs and work your way through whatever these processes are, because if you didn't do it, it's on you. Yes. Um, that's deep. <laughs> but yeah, Sorry. <laughs> okay, so let's talk. Was there anything else in this one particular chapter that you wanted to to talk about what is this one hypermetric mia <laughs> what is oh, that hypermetricemia <laughs> okay 
Okay, it is got it. such a common disease where, you know, so the example of Paul um, is one I use to describe hypermetricemia. You know, where we were measuring so many metrics, right, of, um, for example, you know, revenues, uh, daily average users, and, uh, sorry, daily active users, the net promoter scores, like measuring lots of things except what really matters, right? Um, and it's very easy to do because you read all this, uh, stuff about, you know, what should you be measuring. Um, there are a certain set of popular metrics or vanity metrics that are often what keep coming up and you think that's how you measure success. But, you know, when you have a clear vision and strategy, what emerges out of that is clarity on what should you be measuring uh, for your particular product or for your business. Uh, that's what I mean by overcoming hypermetricemia. <laughs> I looked at that word and I went, okay, I know I'm going to slaughter this, and I did. I wasn't after, and I understood, you know, what you were saying, but I could, I was spelling it out like, you know, phonics. It's like, I see hyper, anyway, let's go through. Okay, so we, I did want to go back a bit to um, when I was introducing you that we were talking about, where is it, the narcissist complex. I think that one's pretty important. Yes. And, you know, narcissist complex, and I'm so glad you brought this one up. Narcissist complex happens when we're very focused inwards on, you know, our own goals, what we think the customer needs, to the point that we really forget and become a little disconnected from the customer. Um, this is where, you know, I think when you think about um, software developers and kind of what is our comfort zone, it becomes really easy for us to think about, you know, I think this is the problem. You know, if I just had this feature, I know I would use this product. And then we go about building the whole product based on what we think we need. Um, and that's what I mean by narcissist complex, where instead, you know, if we were to really ask those questions about the user and what the user needs, we might arrive at a very different strategy in terms of focusing on that real pain point for that user. And based on that, what is the right solution? Right. Do you have any... Um... I just lost my train of thought. It's Monday. Oh. I'm going to apologize right now, but do you have any case studies that, that you can share with us about that? Yeah, I do. Um, so, you know, I, I'll share this from my own experience of having caught um, Narcissus Complex, right? Um, I had a startup, it was called Likely, where we were building, uh, this is an app so that you could find wines that you're likely to like, and hence the name Likely. Um, and so, when we were creating Likely, you know, I really felt like there was one feature I desperately wanted, and I felt like, you know, if, uh, others, if I want this, other people want the same feature. And so what I wanted was uh, to be able to, like, uh, when I try wines, I also wanted to learn about wines. I wanted to plot on a map, you know, all the different places from where I'm drinking wines um, and then, you know, uh, know kind of where all I've tried these wines from uh, and, and what I liked or how much I liked these different wines from these different geographies. But, you know, it turned out this was not what other people truly wanted uh, in terms of in terms of wine, like it was just my narcissist complex of feeling like if I scratched my own itch, that this was what, this is what other people would want. Um, and so that was my example of catching narcissist complex. So what did you find out that they really wanted? And so it turned out that, you know, for those people who 
wanted to learn about wine and kind of um, understand wine better, what they wanted was a way of learning about wine that was not intimidating. Um, and, you know, being able to find wines, kind of like Netflix for wine, where it's, it's really easy to find other wines that you're going to like. Um, so it was that learning about wine and finding good wines that you're likely to like, that was the real pain point. And so in the end, what we concluded, like the most interesting feature for people was uh, the feature of uh, learn by drinking, which is basically these uh, wine tasting courses that, um, so that you would progress in your levels of learning about wine through these tasting kits over time. Oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> really, right. I'm, you know, my brother-in-law has been trying to talk me into liking wine for, oh, gosh, 20 years. I hate this stuff. I just don't <laughs> like wine. And every time I go back to California, he's like, I'm going to take you all to the vineyards. Why? Don't make No. <laughs> I wine through the whole thing. I don't like it. I'm not going to drink it. Stop. Give me some olives and some bread. I'll be happy. Just don't make me drink any more wine. But I, I understand that a lot of people would think that's important. Where can I find it? How can I compare it? What do, you know, what qualities in the wine would match up with already my preferences and what other qualities might kind of add into my preferences? So I, I completely understand that. My preferences for the olives and the sourdough bread. <laughs> but, you know, I think part of that is because of your palate. Like what we discovered, by the way, and this is the real pain point part, um, it turns out that actually a lot of people have a very sensitive palate. And so yeah, I'm a super taster, and it's a problem. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So because of that, right, um, a lot of the wines end up being too tannic for you or too acidic, like it's just too much of a bomb in your mouth. And so, uh, you know, like we can discover that by asking you, like, how do you drink your tea or coffee? Um, oh. And how do you like your fruit salad? So my assumption, and let's, let's test this out. If, if I ask you how do you drink your tea or coffee, I'm going to guess it's probably not black and strong, is it? No. If I drink exactly. coffee on the rare occasions I drink it, it is straight up high test. It's black as my soul. It's, I don't want anything in it. I don't, eat, I don't like sugar. I, don't, I can't. I mean, sugar just makes me go blah, and I just can't do it. So when I drink it, it's more of a, it's medicinal. <laughs> I'm not drinking it because I like it. I'll drink oh, it because I need the jolt. Is, so that's not what you're finding? But I'm a, uh, actually, I'm a super like, taster. That is fascinating. I mean, I, I wouldn't have guessed that only because, like, when you're a super taster, if your taste buds are that sensitive, like black coffee, it's, it's really hard on your taste buds. Um, oh, I don't like it. I don't enjoy it at all. Okay. <laughs> it's medicinal. It's like, okay, I need a buzz. Yeah. I'm not drinking it because I think it tastes yummy. I think it tastes awful. <laughs> but I'm not putting sugar or cream or anything sweet in there because that's even worse. That just makes syrup, and that's, oh, my God, no. I have very distinct attitudes about coffee. Now, tea, I'm the same way. I will drink it straight up black. No sugar, no, no nothing. But I like tea. So go figure. Who knows? Oh, see, well, that is exactly okay. So you like tea because it's less tannic, actually. Um, it's, oh, okay. It's not as strong in terms of taste, yeah. Yeah, I like it. But, you know, people say, oh, I'm, let me buy you coffee. Oh, no, no. You can buy me. 
If you want to buy a tank of gas, okay, we all go for that. No coffee. Yeah, and, you know, people, I mean, I live in the deep south, and people love, love, love coffee. I'm always looked at oddly and say, you don't like coffee? No, I really don't. I'm, and I feel like I should apologize, but I just don't. But, yeah, but I love the idea, you know, going back to your early app of, you know, giving people a coffee. I don't have any problem with that. So how did we get distracted by me telling you that I'm a super taster and I hate coffee? Oh, we were talking about wine. We were talking about narcissist complex and yeah. how, you know, it's just really easy to get focused on what we think we want as opposed to on the customers and what they need. Right. And it is so important. Let's go back to real business here. Sorry about that. <laughs> but it is important to really understand your customer journey and what it is that they're looking for and what your strategy is and where they're going to hit that bottleneck or where they're going to, you know, maybe take true advantage of you. There's a lot of work to be done in these strategies, I think. Exactly. And, you know, it's not just doing the work, but it's also being able to communicate it um, and, and why we're doing what, what we're doing, right? Because most often we're working with other people, um, and, and it's really helpful to have that sort of alignment amongst ourselves in terms of why we're doing what we're doing, um, feeling like we have a clear picture of what we're trying to solve for uh, in terms of, you know, the end user's needs. Because, you know, very often, right, when we're working together, each person has a slightly different idea or they might come up with new ideas. Um, and, and so how do you focus everyone on coming up with ideas that are actually helpful to the product as opposed to catching, you know, strategic swelling? Oh, yeah, let's add this idea in too and we'll do this, right? So when you start with this real pain point and you have this sort of clarity in terms of the strategy, then the ideas that come up, they're actually useful and they – they push the product forward because they're all grounded in the same set of pain points and what are we trying to solve for. Exactly. And that leads me to my next question, which is going to be the characteristics of a good vision because that's part of strategy and, you know, problem solving. So let's go down that road a bit. Yeah. So in terms of um, what is a good vision, so a good vision is something that's really detailed. Uh, a good vision is not, you know, where we have this uh, high level to disrupt or being number one or number two in every market. Like that's just, you know, fluffy and kind of useless. Um, a good vision is one where, you know, we have to really start with the five questions, which is the who, what, why, when, and how questions that I mentioned. Um, but the first thing is it's, Whose world are you trying to change? What does their world look like? Meaning, what exactly is their problem? Why does that need solving? Because, honestly, maybe it doesn't even need solving. Then we can talk about um, what, what do we envision in the world when we can say mission accomplished? Like, what does the world look like when we're done? And then, finally, we can say, how will we bring that about? Uh, and so in the Radical Product Thinking Toolkit, there's a fill-in-the-blank statement that really helps you answer the who, what, why, when, how questions. Um, and by the way, since I told you about the startup, I can tell you about um, the, the Radical Vision Statement for that particular startup. Yeah, please do. So I guess. Okay. So uh, it would read as follows, right? Today when amateur wine drinkers want to find wines that they're likely to like, 
they have to pick attractive looking wine bottles or find wines that are on sale. Uh, this is unacceptable because it leads to so many disappointments. Um, we envision a world where finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies you like on Netflix. We're bringing about this uh, world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wine to your taste and an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. And so now, that's, that's very clear. That makes perfect sense. And I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly the idea, right? It's not this short slogan uh, of uh, something like, you know, to be the leader in wine purchasing. It, it's, it, that, would, that would be meaningless. But this level of detail, um, it, it sounds like an essay, I realize. But as a vision, no, it doesn't. It's, so it's, <laughs> it's just a couple of paragraphs. It's easy to hear, easy to read. And you're like, okay, I get I that. Get it, I completely right? understand. <laughs> It's just exactly. you're giving a little bit more information. Listen, taglines are peachy keen. We all have them. They don't really tell you much. They don't. And there was a time where it was, oh, I have to have a tagline. Yes, you do. But you can't make it your entire branding or your entire messaging. And what you just right. gave me is a message. It is, it's clear. It's very, very clear. And, you know, I loved what you just said. Yes, you need a tagline, but... That's your messaging. And that messaging, by the way, has to be derived from your vision. So the way I like to describe it is, you know, this vision statement that I described in detail, think of that like the blueprint for the house that you're going to build. Now, when you want to sell this house to someone, you don't necessarily show the blueprint. What you show is the pretty picture from the outside that says, look how beautiful this house is from the outside, right? And that's the tagline that is just that pretty picture. But for someone to actually build that house, the team that's doing the work to build that product, what they need is the blueprints. It's not just useful to show this house from the outside. Right. And, you know, once people, you know, going back in my head, I'm hearing you say it again. I don't like wine. I've said that. But <laughs> I would be fascinated to find out how it works. I would go down that journey with you just to, to watch it in action. And then I would mm -hmm. probably say, well, where can I buy cooking wine, <laughs> which you don't want to talk to me about, because <laughs> I do love to cook. <laughs> but, I mean, just the, the journey down there would be, I think, fascinating to watch. Exactly. Interesting. So you found what the pain point is, you solved it, and you explained it. So people can either take it or leave it, but they know what they're looking at. Exactly. And, and this gives you the clarity you need to know what you can build or what you should be building. Right. Interesting. Okay, so we're still going back to the good vision because, listen, we, I'm still stuck on narcissist complex. <laughs> we're all guilty of it. You know, I've, I have built things that I just thought were fantastic. I mean, it, my own website is, you know, living embodiment of that. I finally shut it down the other day, put it behind a coming soon plug-in because it wasn't working. My own website. My client websites work just fine, but I'm not in love with them. You know, I'm in love with my own vision. Turns out my vision kind of doesn't work. It works for me. It works for what I thought my messaging was, but it really didn't. Uh, you know, and I tell people I'm a really good web developer. I am. Trust me, I am. But I get stuck in my own way. I'm the bottleneck, and I recognize that. So I'm going to have to go down this, this strategy form, the 
I'm going to have to reenact that. I, I need to look at my vision because apparently it's not what I think it ought to be. Yeah, and, and the vision, you know, the vision is that first step to really explain what are we trying to achieve. And I think what happens very often, right, is we start to build stuff right after we've crafted a vision as opposed to really working through a strategy. And, you know, I, earlier when you were saying um, – you were saying this shiny object syndrome. I come yeah. it so often where companies say, we don't have time for strategy. You know, let's just build oh, it and then we figure yeah. out how it works. Well, I've kind of done and that with my own website. You know, I, I am so careful with client websites with mine. I'm like, oh, I'll make it pretty. <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> it's, it's not doing what I need it to do. And I, feel, I finally recognized that and went, oh, okay, let's fix this. So I'm so glad we're talking. <laughs> Likewise. Got about 10 more minutes. Where else did you want to go with this? Because everything you're talking about is speaking directly to me. I mean, I'm looking at the new year. I think a lot of us are. It's like, okay, what can we do to, you know, either update what we've got? What can we clean up? What can we completely scrap? This is a good time to say, I'm cleaning out the closets. I'm cleaning out the garage. I'm spring cleaning. It's not spring, but it's the new year. It's that kind of attitude, and I am deep into that attitude right now. What do I clean? What do I trash? What do I give away? I mean, that's all I'm thinking about these days. You know, I love that analogy of what do we keep, what do we trash. I think for me, if I if, if I'm doing the spring cleaning, for me a lot of it is about you know how do I measure success. Um, especially yeah. with the new year starting, right? Like, how? What's the right way to think about measuring success? And hypermetricemia is that disease. And by the way, it's so common now, especially because you know, if you're working in a company, you know, most likely there are all these goals that you that are being set for you. It's not even that you're setting right. yourself. It's not you. Um, or maybe, yeah, and maybe you want to set goals, etc. So how do you even decide, kind of, what are the right um, how do you measure success, right? And so uh, the, the thing that I would like to really convey is very often we're stuck measuring popular metrics and what is popular. Um, and whether it's, you know, in terms of revenues or time spent on site, like very often those are the metrics that we often hear others talk about, and that's how we end up measuring success. But I, maybe one thing, if we're doing the spring cleaning, is to think differently about metrics. So the, the key message here is that, you know, whatever it might be metrics for other people, those are not necessarily the right metrics for your business, right? Um, and so to, to go back to this example of Mac and the coffee app, um, the right metric for them was not just the time spent on site or, uh, or, you know, the number of people who are getting coffees. It was really how many people were spending their own money to buy someone a coffee. That was the measure of spreading kindness, right? And so we have to think about what are the right metrics given your particular vision and your strategy. So I like to think about vision and strategy as hypotheses. Uh, this they represent, you know, this is my best guess in terms of what I think will work, what I want to do. And so everything that we should be measuring should be based on that. So let's take the, the example of strategy, right? We talked about real pain points, design, capabilities, logistics. Each of, that, each of those are um, elements uh, of uh, strategy. And so you can think about metrics as 
a way of proving or disproving each of those elements. So I'll give you an example. You know, we talked about the feature um, where each person gets two coffees, one that they must consume, the other that they must gift. Well, how would you know if this feature is working? Um, what would you measure? So if you treat your strategy as a hypothesis, then you would say, okay, then I would measure, you know, uh, how many people are actually gifting the free coffees. Uh, and then you would also want to measure how many people are uh, using their money to buy someone a coffee, right? And you would compare what that looks like. So all of those are, are kind of metrics that come out of our vision and strategy. And that is why, you know, kind of rethinking how we measure success and basing it on a vision and strategy is so important. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because I'm actually literally in the middle. I've gotten to the middle of writing a book about podcasting. And one of the things that I see that people in some of these Facebook groups and other groups, LinkedIn groups about podcasting, look, the, the whole industry has just gone insane. It's growing, it's growing, it's growing. But they're so worried about what I think are silly metrics, like how many downloads do I have, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what is your podcast about? Who is your audience? And I want to know why they're so busy comparing their metrics, their downloads, their sponsorships to everybody else. That is just not right. Mm, exactly. And you just and proved you know, that, that, so that thank you. But you're – yeah, I, I love what you just said because I think there's the social pressure, right? This is yes. what everyone else is measuring, and this is how everyone else talks about uh, success. Uh, if you're a podcaster, you know, this is what you should be looking for. But if you have a vision as a podcaster, you know, saying this is the change that I'm hoping to create, then the way presumably that you would measure success is whether people listening to your podcast are able to apply those lessons and are able to create change, right? And so if you start to think about your podcast like this product, what's the change you're trying to bring about? What you measure should be about, are you actually succeeding in creating that change through your audience? And honestly, I think I am because and I've said this to you, I've said it to every guest that's ever been on the show, and I've been doing this for 13 years, so I'm an early adapter. This show is not about me. It's to bring you to a very wide audience so people can learn from you. They can go follow you. They can go find you. They can buy your purchase, you know, they can purchase their, your books, but you can inspire them or motivate them to do something a little bit different or a lot different in their business as they find it right now. And that's why I podcast. It's about my guests. Listen, I, and I'm going to tell the whole world, I consider my guests to be my mentors. I learn so much from y'all. You have no idea. Oh, thank you. But it's always such a pleasure. I mean, you know, I feel like I learned something from your podcast too. Um, and, and I think that's the value that you bring, right? Like it's these lessons for businesses and leaders on like, well, how do you adapt to business always and constantly? Right. And, and I have never cared about the numbers. In fact, until a year or two ago, I never bothered to look. And that was about the last time I looked. I don't care. All I care about is what message I'm bringing to a very big audience. It's interesting how big it is. We're big in China, by the way. Um, it's just interesting to how your voice can get heard all over the world simply because we both lock in and have a chat. That's really my only mm. interest. I know. 
I don't care about the numbers. The numbers, you know, they're going to work themselves out. I don't go chase them is my point. Yeah, and and that's fascinating, right, because I think you have a vision um, and, and you're providing a product that really has value to the listeners, uh, to the people you invite on, on your podcast. Um, and so the numbers sort of flow out of that. And they do. so even when you're not chasing the numbers, right, when you have this clarity of what you're bringing, I think that's what really drives results. And that's such an interesting example. Well, I'm bringing you to the world. Now, that's my whole point. It's not about me. It's about my guests. Always has been. And I get to meet, listen, I live in a small, very small town. It used to be a village up until a few years ago. And I'm not too far from the Gulf of Mexico in southwest Louisiana. I am not going to meet people like you in my local Walmart. Not going to happen. So I get to meet really fascinating people by, you know, this, through this podcast. I love it. You know, I love this podcast because it really is all about you. Oh, and it, it's such a pleasure to also listen to you uh, on these podcasts and your guests. So I really Oh, it. thank you. Well, listen, we've got just a few more minutes. So before, you know, I disrupt you again, talking about coffee or wine or whatever the heck's going to come out of my mouth today, what else do you want our audience to know about that you really think is important that they understand or should go look at? Yeah, it's something that we talked about uh, we touched on last time, right? I think when you think about all of what we just talked about, having this clarity of vision, being able to craft a really clear strategy, etc., uh, the one thing I'll say is use this as a power for good, right? Because um, this, this, having all of this at your fingertips, it gives you the superpower to build successful products. You can figure out exactly what customer needs um, and build a product that addresses those needs. Uh, you know, you can, you can figure these things out and build a successful product that gets millions of users. But in the end, the big question for me is, what is the change that you want to see in the world? Make sure that it's a change that you actually want to see in the world, right? Um, and so this is the part where I, I, we talked about digital pollution last time. Uh, but you know, A bit, but I wanted to ask you about that because I'm actually at that chapter, chapter eight. Yeah. You know, for me, when we build products, just thinking about the numbers and chasing success that we were talking about, right? We often end up creating things that are not necessarily creating a better world. They're not creating the world that we want to live in. Um, when we build products without that clarity of vision of what's the change you want to bring about, um, you know, Facebook is an example of that where they, they talked about their early vision as creating a world that's open and connected. And you would say, well, that's a vision. But Actually, when you think about that, think about it in this radical vision statement format, right? When you say a world that's open and connected, it doesn't answer the who, what, why, when, and how questions. Um, it just is a nice-sounding tagline. Tagline, it's not, exactly. Not, yes. Thank you. And it, it's not really talking about what's the change that they really envision that they want to see a better world. Uh, and herein lies the, the responsibility that comes with the superpower. We have to think about what's the change we want to bring about um, and is this going to create a better world uh, for, for humanity in general. Right. 
And, you know, in our last conversation, we talked about Boeing. So I really want people to go back. If you're hearing us, go back and listen to that first one and then come back and listen to this one. Start with one and then come to two because the Boeing story is very, very important. So we've got about a minute. So, Radhika, where can people find you? Uh, so my book is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's your local bookstore. You can find that. It's Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset of Innovating Smarter. Uh, you can also get the free toolkit uh, that has vision, strategy, priorities, and how do you measure success. Uh, that toolkit is for free on RadicalProduct.com. And then lastly, you know, people can feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I always love to hear stories of how people are using this to create change in the world. I was going to ask you, so, you know, thank you for sharing that second link because I think that's really important. Ten. Thank you so much for being, you know, coming back. It's been wonderful speaking with you. And I love your book. I mean, you should see it. It's it, it's gotten kind of fat. It's got sticky notes all over it. It's put on a little weight. <laughs> That's how I keep track of where I want to go. So, oh, I need to go back to that one. If it's a pink sticky note, it's really important. If it's a yellow sticky point, it's sticky, stickies, whatever. It's Monday. It's, you know, but pink is important. Those are the ones I have to go back and really revisit. So thank you. And I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice that you've shared with our audience. So before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes, Amazon Prime. We're everywhere. You can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your part in Success Radio. So just look for us and take us along on your success journey. Radhika, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 